Our scripture this morning comes from Exodus 32. Listen now to God's word. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning, uh, we continue our journey through the set of readings that are laid out for us by the narrative lectionary, which is a tool that I'm, I'm really grateful for, because truth be told, I, I likely would not have picked today's passage to preach on, and yet the more I've sat with this text over the past week, the more I realize how timely it really is. Now, before we get into today's reading, let's just take a minute to kind of set things up. Uh, Israel had been chosen by God, not for their own sake, remember, but rather to be the vehicle through whom God would bless the entire world. And yet that said, Israel had spent 400 plus years in captivity as slaves in Egypt. And then as Dave highlighted last week, God liberated his people from that oppression, led them out of Egypt and towards the land that he had promised to them, a place that would kind of be their home base, as it were, for their mission of blessing the whole world. However, it's important to note that that work of, of being transformed into a faithful representation of what it means to be God's people can't just happen overnight. As I've heard it said, it might have only taken God roughly 40 days to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took God 40 years in the wilderness to get the Egypt out of Israel. In other words, those centuries of captivity had shaped Israel's identity and their imagination in a certain way. And, and so God had work to do in transforming Israel 
before they'd be ready to inhabit the land. And, and to be fair to Israel, I mean, they needed some convincing that this God was safe and good and, and truly on their side. Because again, their experience to this point had taught them otherwise. Their experience in Egypt had taught them that those in power always have an agenda. And that agenda is usually self-serving. And, and those who serve the powerful are often expendable and could expect to be punished or discarded when they were no longer seen as useful or valuable. And, and so while Israel has to this point certainly see God do some amazing and powerful things, they still want to keep God at arm's length, which, which is where Moses comes in. Israel likes the arrangement they have with Moses as, as kind of their go-between with God, their mediator. And we learned a few chapters earlier that, that Moses had gone up on the mountain many times to meet with God, to do business with God on behalf of the people. Israel wanted some direction for how they were to live as this God's people. They wanted to know the boundaries, wanting to please God, not necessarily at this point out of, out of a deep love for Yahweh, but rather perhaps out of fear because they didn't want to inadvertently anger this God. They wanted to stay on this God's good side. And so Moses often met with Yahweh on the mountain. And it was there that God gave the Ten Commandments, the law for Israel, that they might have some guidance in how they should live as God's people in this world. And, and so with all of that context now, we arrive at today's story. Uh, upon his most recent departure to the mountain, apparently Moses didn't give the people any idea how long he'd be gone. And by the time of today's reading, he had been gone for nearly 40 days, much longer than usual. So the people were understandably getting a little bit nervous. They, they no longer had their go-between. What happened to Moses? I mean, was he dead? And if that happened, if he was dead, what, what do they do then? Or, or if he's not, then what's he up to? And so in, in their anxiety over feeling disconnected from Yahweh in Moses' absence, the people take matters into their own hands. Now, many of our translations say something along the lines of, the people gathered around Aaron. But the Hebrew actually says the people gathered against Aaron. It's a phrase rife with, with menacing connotations. It's clear the people aren't playing around. They even refer to Moses as this fellow Moses. And, and so in a strong, almost antagonistic manner, Israel comes to Aaron with their request. And the request they make is truly staggering. I mean, they say to Aaron, come Make us gods who will go before us. Now, the exact nature of their request isn't exactly clear because the Hebrew language leaves things ambiguous in the language it uses. The word used for gods, plural here, is Elohim. But, but Elohim can be singular or plural depending on the context it's found in. And most often in Scripture, it's actually in the singular form. Elohim is used to refer to the Lord. Singular, And so we've got to use context to decide what's going on here. But in this context, almost all English translations agree that they're requesting gods, plural. What's going on? I mean, it's quite possible that in, in Moses' absence and without his leadership, Israel is drifting back into what they knew the best. The, the cultic religion that they were used to in Egypt, where it wasn't uncommon to worship multiple gods. Yet it's also plausible that they simply wanted to maintain a strong connection with the divine. And in Moses' absence, 
they were experiencing kind of a, devo- a void of, of divine representation. And so since they no longer had someone or something tangible to represent God's presence in their midst, they freak out. And they ask Aaron to fashion an idol to represent Yahweh for them so they could still feel connected to God, so that they could still appease their God. Now, no matter how we understand the request that Israel is making here, they're clearly violating one, if not both, of the first two commandments. If Elohim is meant to be plural in this instance, it's a clear violation of the first commandment that says, you shall have no other gods before me. And even if it's meant to be singular, and they're simply asking Aaron to fashion something that represents Yahweh, it's a clear violation of the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol. One commentator called this request Israel's original sin. This is a big deal. And it angers the heart of God. Shifting scenes up on the mountain, meeting with Moses, God sees what's happening with Israel. And what does God say to Moses? God says, go down because your people, Moses, your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. What strikes you in what God says there? If you're at all familiar with the narrative of Scripture to this point, you'll know that it's not uncommon to hear God refer to Israel as my people whom I brought up out of Egypt. And yet here, God refers to Israel as your people, to Moses. Now, those of us who, who are parents might be familiar with this sort of talk, like when one of your kids gets unruly or behaves in an absolutely appalling fashion, you might have heard a spouse say something like, do you see what your son just did? Or did you hear what your daughter just said? And it's never a good thing when you hear it put that way. And so I'm sure Moses gets a sick feeling in the pit of his stomach as soon as God begins the conversation that way and things only get worse from there. It soon becomes clear that God is so upset by how quickly and easily Israel has turned away from their devotion to him that God is ready to take some drastic measures. God reveals to Moses that his anger is burning so strongly he's ready to abandon Israel completely, destroy them, and instead move his covenant promise forward through Moses and his family line. And Moses is, is just devastated by this news. Now, I, I want to draw our attention to something remarkable in Moses' response to God. Actually, several remarkable things. First, Moses is incredibly selfless in today's account because in many ways what God is proposing doesn't really hurt Moses. It actually benefits Moses because God would be elevating Moses' bloodline to be the one through whom God's covenant would be fulfilled. Moses' offspring would be the new people of God and the source of blessing for all nations. But unlike many of our leaders today and and throughout human history, Moses isn't in this for himself. He isn't looking for his name to be made great. Rather, Moses advocates here for the people. He pleads on behalf of Israel. And more remarkable yet is that Moses actually argues with God, giving everything he's got to change God's mind and spare the people of Israel. He doesn't just accept God's decree. Moses instead responds to God by saying, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? 
Moses is redirecting things, reminding God that despite their rebellion, Israel is still God's people. Moses further tries to defuse the situation by arguing that destroying Israel now would tarnish Yahweh's reputation in the world. Not only would it make God look bad in Egypt's eyes, but but it would also make God look no better than Egypt. Because in essence, God would have rescued Israel from an evil captivity only to then slaughter them in the wilderness out of an evil intent, as Moses puts it. This is quite the bold move on Moses' part. He is contending with God, arguing that to destroy Israel is not consistent with who God has revealed himself to be to this point. And the craziest thing is that it works. It works. Various translations say that God then relented, or the Lord repented, or that God changed his mind. Say what? Now, now, the way God acts in our reading today raises a whole host of questions, and most of them we won't be able to answer today. Questions like, can God's mind really be changed? Can God initially react one way only to like, take a deep breath, calm down, and then act in a different manner? I mean, much of that flies in the face of our, our notions of what God is like. Peter ends in his commentary on this passage, writes this, If a poll were taken of seminary students, perhaps pastors as well, and if the question was, what is God like? My strong suspicion is that many of the following attributes of God would be mentioned. Omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign, unchanging, eternal, creator, and so forth. Few would add to the list things such as prone to change his mind, argues with his people, can be frustrated, can regret past actions. Yet all of these latter attributes are just as scripturally defensible. Too often, it seems to me, despite our biblical literacy, we think of how God ought to be rather than how he has actually revealed himself. For now, it is enough to draw attention to the way in which God is presented in Exodus. He is high, exalted, and mighty. He is also near and approachable. Indeed, he wants to be approached. We will never be able to fit God in a nice, tidy box. For as God tells us in Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. We'll never fully be able to comprehend the greatness of God. We can certainly affirm attributes of God, like his omniscience and his omnipotence, and yet also affirm that God consistently reveals himself in a way throughout Scripture that takes seriously our interactions with him, even seeming to allow himself to be impacted by our actions. Uh, Sarah Koenig, in her commentary on this passage, notes, the Old Testament gives us examples of humans who understand prayer to be a conversation and God to be a relational God who actually listens to humans. To settle here does not deny that God is God, but clarifies that God is a God for us and with us. And I pray that would be one of the primary takeaways we have from today's passage. But, but now I want to backtrack a little bit to, to a portion of our reading that I think bears some strong resonance to where we find ourselves today. And, and for that, let's look again at Israel's desire to create an idol. Now, before we get too judgy about what they did, perhaps we should look in the mirror. We have to recognize our own tendency to look for assurance in things other than God, or even in things that we believe might represent God. 
I mean, I can't help but notice the ways in which our situation is not that dissimilar to Israel's. Whereas Moses was absent from the people, and they wondered if he'd ever come back. Today, at times, Jesus can feel absent to us, and we wonder when he'll ever come back. In their anxiety, Israel turned to a golden calf as a measure of reassurance and as a physical representation of God's presence. And often in our own anxiety, we turn to many things other than God for reassurance. Could be money, our jobs, our significant other, alcohol, Netflix, you name it. There are many idols we might turn to. But, but in the throes of, of an election season, I want to turn our attention towards perhaps one of the biggest idols in the American church today, and that is America itself. I think if we look at the trajectory of the evangelical church in particular, we've come dangerously close to turning America itself into some sort of physical representation of God's presence in our world. I quite frequently hear Christians claim America's identity as a Christian nation. We've woven together God and country almost as seamlessly as Aaron fused Yahweh with the golden, cla- golden calf. Israel didn't see that as idolatry. Rather, they believed it to be an expression of their loyalty to their God. And being a good and faithful Christian is often seen as synonymous with being a good and patriotic American. And yet, in the words of Greg Boyd from from his masterful book, The Myth of a Christian Nation, I believe that a significant segment of American evangelicalism is guilty of nationalistic and political idolatry. To a frightful degree, I think, evangelicals fuse the kingdom of God with a preferred version of the kingdom of the world. Whether it's our national interests, a particular form of government, a particular political program, or so on. Rather than focusing our understanding of God's kingdom on the person of Jesus, I believe many of us American evangelicals have allowed our understanding of the kingdom of God to be polluted with political ideals, agendas, and issues. Turning from... Greg Boyd, to someone on the complete opposite end of the Christian theological spectrum. John Piper tackled the same topic just this past week. And and despite my own differences with Piper, and there are many, he hit the nail on the head when he rejected Christian attempts to put too much stake in political parties or candidates or, or throwing all of our efforts into saving this particular American empire that we live in. Piper instead reminded us as Christians that our citizenship is in a different kind of kingdom altogether. And he specifically challenged those of us who are pastors, asking us, have you inadvertently created the mindset that the greatest issue in life is saving America and its earthly benefits? Or have you shown your people that the greatest issue is exalting Christ with or without America? Have you shown them that the people who do the most good for the greatest number for the longest time are people who have the aroma of another world with another king? And Piper concluded his article by saying that in Jesus we have a kingdom that will never be shaken, not even when America is a footnote in the archives of the new creation. Now to be clear, I'm I'm not advocating that we ignore the importance of of how we vote or engage the political systems in our culture. Neither are Boyd or Piper making that argument. We're called to seek the shalom of our neighbor. But 
I am seeking as one of your pastors to remind us that we are never to find our identity or our worth in our nation or in our politics. Nor should we ever conflate our country with God or use language for America that Scripture only ever uses to describe the church. America is not the shining city on a hill. We, as Jesus' followers, are a city on a hill. And on that note, I want to close by reminding us, as followers of Jesus, of our role in the world, of our identity. As we've already discussed, Moses served as a mediator between God and the people. We see in Moses an obvious precursor to Jesus, who was, in the words of Paul, the mediator between God and humanity. We can never forget that. Jesus has already done all that needs to be done to bring us peace with God. We never need to fear that God might smite us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is our peace, and his peace cannot be undone. God's faithfulness is greater than our unfaithfulness. But I want us to remember our Moses-like role. If we fast forward a few chapters in Exodus to chapter 34, Moses comes down from the mountain after spending time with God, and his face is just glowing. The glow being a physical reflection of God's glory, the result of Moses' time spent face-to-face with God on the mountain. And it's too much for the people. They're actually frightened by it, and so Moses puts a veil over his face to cover it. Now, I share that because when we fast forward even further into the New Testament, and Paul's letter to the Second Corinthians, or to the Corinthians, we, we see that this role of reflecting God's glory into the world has now become our responsibility. In 2 Corinthians 3:18, Paul writes this: "And we all, who with unveiled faces and that's a direct reference again to Moses veiling his face, we who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory." are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Paul reminds us that we, together as the church, as God's people in this world, we reflect God's glory. And so church, our hope is not in an election or a flag or a candidate or a country. May we reject those and any other American idols. And instead, may we find our hope by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith, embracing our identity to reflect his glory into our world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your patience with us as your people. And God, we we pray that uh, you would help us root out the idols in our own lives, the things that compete with you, the things that we put our trust in instead of you. May we fix our eyes firmly on Jesus, and as we do so, shape in us the kind of character that reflects his love, his grace, his truth into our world. We pray these things in your name. Amen.